This is Wendy. This is Debbie. And we have a special guest today to talk about perimenopause. This is a topic that's not spoken of very often. Just, and I'm not sure why, because it's such a, it's, it can be, right? An emotional and turbulent and wild ride like you have. I, I loved that term, wild ride, right? Um, but it can also be a really beautiful, very creative, very empowering time in women's people's lives. And I think that we have this culture that kind of says, oh, this time of our life stinks or it's terrible because of all these fluctuations. And Debbie and I want to try to just have a conversation around disrupting that auto default idea that it has to be bad and maybe there are some challenges but how do we grow from them how do we get better understanding of ourselves and then grow into it kind of embracing it instead of denying the changes that are happening because I think you know as Debbie and I right now as we're doing this podcast in 2020 COVID times Debbie and I just both turned 51 (laughs) <laughs> we're right there in we're right. right there in perimenopause. So this is really good timing for us to have this That's right. conversation with you, you Lori. Um, well, I think it's a great it's a great time for all of us to have the conversation because women have such interesting reproductive lifespans. You know, it starts uh, from a young age this hormonal transition, and then we have what we call the reproductive years, right? And remember that in this culture, we really hold up youth and beauty and uh, the ability to have children as this almost sacred thing in our culture. And what I think also needs to be sacred is this other stage of women's lives, which is a time of tremendous creativity and Women, once they are through this transition, and it may be, it's certainly very individualized, but it it can certainly be a wild ride. Hormonally, we can really see it as a wild ride. Uh, But getting beyond that transition gives you a time of your life when you are, uh, as many women describe, healthy and free and open to being able to pursue so many creative pursuits and really get comfortable again in your own skin without a lot of those traditional roles being thrust upon you, some of which you may have embraced and some of it maybe you didn't. So I think this is, as you said, it it is a very beautiful time of a woman's life, and we do need to celebrate it and recognize it. And I think that starts with also understanding hormonally that it can be difficult. I think that's the perfect segue to introduce Lori. So Lori, would you please do us the favor in introducing yourself and telling us all about what you do? Great. Thank you. Um, I'm Lori Jeffers, uh, Dr. Lori Jeffers, and I am a clinical assistant professor at NYU, New York University. I've also been in clinical practice as a nurse practitioner specializing in women's health for about 20 years. And I had my own practice for much of that time. Uh, I still continue to practice to this day. I teach undergrad and graduate students. I've taught in the midwifery program. 
I teach in the family nurse practitioner program. So really the thrust of my expertise, both clinically, educationally, uh, has been devoted to women's health. So it's a topic near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So I think it's important that we define what perimenopause is because some people might not actually know what that is. We hear about menopause and we've heard the term perimenopause, but maybe some people don't exactly understand what exactly is perimenopause. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So menopause, we always define after the fact, right? You right. go 12 months without a period and then we know Typically, depending on your age and the fact that you've gone 12 months without a a period, we can diagnose menopause. So perimenopause is really that transition, the hormonal transition leading up to that final menstrual period. So that encompasses many, many years of kind of the aging of the follicles or the aging of the eggs. And what a hormonal impact that has uh, on a woman's uh, estrogen and progesterone levels. And we have receptors throughout our body, really in every organ, every system in our body, that are both estrogen and progesterone sensitive. So as those hormones are withdrawn, it has a wide range of effects uh, throughout our body. How can people tell maybe if you go to the doctor and you think I might be in perimenopause or I, I don't know if my symptoms are perimenopause. How, how, what do you do to diagnose a woman who may or may not be in perimenopause? Usually we start with, um, we, we really can't look at chronological age. That's not a good indicator. So usually we are looking for women who are within a certain type of symptomatology around their cycles. So we are looking for some variability in their cycles. Usually it starts with this persistent shift of about a seven-day difference in the length of their consecutive cycles. Uh, Later perimenopause would be an interval of no period, no menses for 60 days or more. Uh, so usually, basically, we are looking just at the cycles. Um, so we're really looking at symptoms. We're looking at uh, what the, the cycles are doing. So that's one of your primary recommendations, right, is to actually track it so that when you're speaking with a physician or a practitioner that you can have that kind of dialogue. You're actually mm-hmm. tracking what's going on. I think it's really something important for all patients to do, uh, whether they're, no matter what their age is, to really be in touch with what their cycles are doing. And there are so many great um, period trackers now that people can just do it on their phone. And you can take that in to your clinician and I can look at the data very quickly and see usually the patients themselves will just say to me, okay, you know, my average cycle length is this, and it has this kind of variability. I mean, all that data is right there on their phone a lot of the time. Laura, is there a, a blood test or any kind of chemical analysis that can be done on someone to find out these answers as well? Well, that's a, a, that's a great thought. Um, usually in late perimenopause, we can see changes uh, that show up as elevations in follicle-stimulating hormone levels or FSH levels. But truthfully, there's not 
a reason to generally do that. There, this may be a good time to do a lab panel to look at an overall picture, but hormone levels are very unreliable, particularly ah. perimenopausally, because they tend to vary so much. Some cycles will have a lot of estrogen and no progesterone, and other cycles will have much lower levels of estrogen and progesterone. The difference, what really is happening is women are beginning to have what we call anovulatory cycles, cycles where they don't ovulate. Uh, so this lack of normal ovulation that is very much a characteristic of the normal reproductive years um, and I don't mean to say that's what's normal because this is all normal. All these trans. <laughs> oh, I love that. Are right. normal. Yeah. But um, the the reproductive years uh, for most women, and not all women, because of course we have women who struggle with infertility. Um, we have women that struggle with PCOS and all different kinds of hormonal issues. But uh, they're during the usual reproductive lifespan of a woman, she will have more cycles than not that will be ovulatory. And we see less ovulation or less regular ovulation on both ends of the lifespan in adolescent young women and as women approach perimenopause and menopause. So it's these hormonal fluctuations that really account for the wide array of symptomatology that we see. Uh, and they're, they're so wide ranging because we talked about all these different receptors throughout the body. So the brain, the heart, the bowels, everything is innervated by these, you know, hormone receptors. And so therefore sensitive to the fluctuations that we see in the hormones. So if I'm understanding right, it's that there's such fluctuations and it can change day to day, I imagine. So then any one test given on any one day can't tell you exactly what's going on. That's exactly right. So okay. it's not really helpful and uh, there's, there's not really a good point to it. What you do want to do is you can use this as a great time to take stock and look at the bigger picture of your health. So a lab panel that look at, looks at cholesterol, you know, lipid profile, um, a complete blood count, a thyroid test, uh, all of those kinds of things. You certainly would want to rule out another cause. Uh, you wouldn't want to miss something. But measuring um, hormone levels that are going to vary so much makes no sense whatsoever. It Absolutely. sounds like a rabbit hole of crazy to me. <laughs> to try to base, it, base, you know, how you're, how you're, manipulating yourself based on those panels. And I, I love what you said about getting to know yourself because really if we're having PMS symptoms that we might have had as a youth very early on and we're having them now in our 40s, 50s, 60s, we can get kind of confused about where that's coming from. You know, I don't feel like myself or I'm reacting irrationally. But if we step back and get to understand that these are hormone fluctuations, we can be kinder to ourselves, kinder to the others, you know, have many personal practices to bring us back into our body instead of being so reactionary. And I think just knowing ourselves and, and being more connected because our society wants answers. We want the tool. We, we want the prescription. We want the fix, right? And 
I think what I'm hearing is that we have so many fluctuations. We can't, we really need to be in a flow with our body and with everything that's going on instead of being attached to what the prescription or the fix is. How? Right. And I, I want to say a couple of things about that because I think what you said is, is so important and that women spend a great deal of their lifespan taking care of other people. And this is a time, this, this can be a real wake up call for women who have put themselves last and now need to really honor themselves. They need to honor their bodies. They need to honor this transition. They need to have, as you said so beautifully, a lot of self compassion and they need to slow down and take care of themselves. And, uh, because there is no one fix for the hormones as they're fluctuating, uh, lifestyle issues become very important. All of these things that are part going to be part of slowing down and taking care of yourself first. It's kind of like putting that oxygen mask on yourself rather than uh, onto the person you're traveling with first. But the other thing that I want to mention about that is we also know that vasomotor symptoms, otherwise known as hot flashes, um, women experience up to 85% of women in the menopause transition, particularly as they get closer to that final menstrual period and within the two years following that, uh, will often experience moderate to severe hot flashes several times a day and during the night. And those can be fixed. That That is one thing that can be fixed. So that is a time when I don't think women should be afraid to think about, you know, what can I do so that I don't have to suffer? And that's sort of another conversation that needs to be had just because women are, just like we're talking about in perimenopause, it's under-treated, uh, it's under-discussed. The other end of the other side of the conversation, I think, is that there are ways that we can help women very effectively with severe hot flashes that also goes unaddressed many times. Okay. All right, let's let's spell them out. <laughs> we we want to hear some of the ideas behind this wisdom here. <laughs> women have been uh, afraid of hormones because of one study that came out. In 2001, I think it was, or 2002, it was 2002, the Women's Health Initiative, and it was a comprehensive randomized control trial on HRT, and there were several issues with it, but one of the takeaways, unfortunately, uh, was that, you know, hormones are bad for you, that estrogen uh, has many bad effects, and that you shouldn't take it. And women were like madly throwing their hormones. I mean, I, I was in practice at this time, so it was very interesting historically to see this. Women literally calling the office in a panic, throwing away their hormones, stopping everything. And subsequently, um, as we looked closer at that data, we saw that there were many issues with it in that only one type of hormone product was utilized the women that were involved in the study were much older. Their average age was 62. They had a lot of pre-existing uh, heart disease and other issues. So um, unfortunately, for, for many years, many, many, many years, women were very afraid of hormones, and they did not 
understand that different formulations of hormones and using an individualized approach to hormone therapy and hormone treatment can actually um, help women tremendously. So I think that that's a really important takeaway is that you can use bioidentical, and I don't mean hand compounded. I don't want there to be some confusion with that. There are pharmaceutical grade FDA approved bioidentical estrogens and progesterones that can be utilized and they are extraordinarily effective at minimizing the, the symptoms that happen, you know, after that final period has been reached. Could you explain that difference between the hand compounding and the pharmaceutical grade to give a little bit of backstory for some people who've heard both sides of that? Right. So um, basically hand compounding is uh, the mixing of hormones. Um, Exactly what, what it says, hand compounding. And the problem with hand compounding hormones is that we can get a lot of variability in the dosing. We can get a lot of variability in the quality. And there's really no reason to use it when we can use prescription grade, pharmaceutical grade, FDA approved bioidenticals. And this, we didn't have these options before, but we have them now. So we can use, um, you know, patches. We can use uh, gels. We can use rings, all of these ways of um, not even having to take oral hormones. You, you can take oral hormones, but, but using a lot of different mechanisms for dosing um, these hormones in a way where your body is going to get exactly what the, an exact match to the receptors. So natural estradiol, natural progesterone. Uh, and those, those are certain products that are exactly the same. So I don't see any need and I actually see a huge downside to hand compounding hormones. Okay. Interesting. What about, um, I know some people, um, would like to do maybe even more natural things or alternative remedies, remedies such as phytoestrogens and, and herbal medications. And I guess I want to get your take on that, you know, things that are the yams and the flax seeds and the sesame seeds and tofu and other stuff like that. Tell me what your take is on that kind of stuff. Well, um, my take is that we know from the data uh, that we really do need certain um, – <laughs> certain amounts and certain dosages to be effective and that uh -huh. we are not going to be able to get that same effect that we get from taking estrogen in a pharmaceutical grade in, a, in an appropriate dose that, uh, you know, these other medications cannot do that and in, in some cases can do harm. Now, that's not to say that having a good lifestyle, using lifestyle such as diet and exercise as an alternative treatment. Those right. are two alternative treatments where you can never go wrong. But unfortunately, the data regarding either of those things for um, being a good treatment for hot flashes, moderate to severe hot flashes, it's just not there. So I feel like we can do women a disservice by, you know, 
telling them, oh, you need to exercise more or you need to have a better diet. It's almost like part of that shaming that can go on where we're almost blaming women for um, not being able to fix themselves. Whereas this is one situation where um, we can, it actually, for me as a clinician, it's very, very satisfying and gratifying to see menopausal women because to me, this is something we really can get a quick fix with. And, and that's not true with most things. Um, Correct. But hormones in the right dose uh, and using the right timing in the right patient, you know, who doesn't have contraindications to using hormones, can, they can be enormously effective and give, give very quick relief. So that part is much easier than trying to help perimenopausal women. And I think for perimenopause, using more diet and exercise interventions can can be probably more helpful, particularly in women who haven't attended to a good diet and good exercise habits because they haven't paid enough attention to themselves a lot of times. Right. There aren't any specific herbals. I mean, we throw around phytoestrogens, um, black cohosh. Um, I'm trying to think of what some of the evening other- primrose oil. I've heard, right. and and unfortunately, none of these. You know, we've done at this point. I think we have a burden of data that unfortunately just doesn't show um, an effect for right. any of those, uh, other than for black cohosh standardized extract of black cohosh for mild hot flashes that can be effective but other than that that's good to know Mm -hmm. yeah is there any did you know if there's any research done on acupuncture for hot flashes acupuncture and unfortunately that too was very disappointing um that the, the the data and i'm just pulling this out right now the data that we have is um has not shown, but again, you know, that's, that may not be the last word in it. Remember, we have, just as we've said, we've undertreated and underdiagnosed and not talked about this transition enough. That also translates to not having a lot of data. So, you know, let's get more data and maybe we'll find something good, but for right now, we have to be very, very careful uh, with what we're telling women to do because things like ginseng, there are certain things, certain herbs that can actually increase vaginal bleeding and, you know, they can have adulterated forms and can cause more harm than good, which is certainly something we don't want to do. Yes, absolutely. Well, it goes back to this idea that we want to fix. So a little bit of yams and Tofu, for example, I'll just have more of it and try to balance myself out and actually end up causing some downstream issues uh, with our health otherwise. And right. I think, yeah. Yes. And I, I think that it's, uh, the, the importance of, I mean, it's very clear across every medical condition and every um, metabolic situation that we have, there is nothing that exercising more and eating better is not going to help, right? Absolutely right. nothing. I Man. mean, if right. we had a pill, it, you know, if we had a pill that was labeled good diet and a <laughs> pill that was labeled exercise, um, you know, everybody would want it. Yep. 
the challenge is, and I know you guys know this, but the challenge is um, how do we get people to do it, right? How do we get people to eat more healthfully? How do we get people to exercise just 150 minutes a week right. of some sort of even moderate aerobic exercise has an amazing ability to decrease rates of diabetes and uh, de- you know, improve insulin sensitivity and improve the cardiometabolic profile. I mean, it's the same with diet. It, it, these are very powerful, powerful tools uh, that it, it's just really hard for people to get there. Um, so that's always something I'm promoting along the lifespan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to... Um, it, it, if you utilize those as interventions, it's not going to prevent you from going through this hormonal transition and still potentially having a bumpy ride. It's certainly not going to cure your hot flashes, but it's going to improve so many other things that you're at risk, greater risk for uh, once you reach the age of 45 to 50. You know, when you see increased breast cancer rates, we see increases in uh, heart disease, number one. Uh, So those kinds of things increases women age and osteoporosis later on. Um, We have uh, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, so a lot of urinary and vaginal symptoms that can be very uncomfortable, painful, and all of these things that we're talking about really affect women's quality of life. And that's, mm-hmm. again, something that goes under-addressed. And so the quality of life issue is important throughout this transition and then even later on. Because later on, once women have completed this transition, although they feel healthy, free, and we've talked about uh, this creativity and this ab- the ability to reclaim their own life and, and jump back into what they want to be and what they want to do. At the same time, we know we see increased rates of osteoporosis, increased rates of heart disease, increased rates of, you know, difficulties vaginally and urinary wise. So I think the message is that we have to understand each of these stages as normal transitions but that's not to say that we don't need to intervene and do something because particularly when a woman's quality of life is being impacted, we really need to, um, as clinicians, I feel an obligation to, to also uh, bring on the prescriptive therapies or other types of also working with a team, pelvic floor physical therapists, um, all of the different people who can play a role. It's very important, a team, I think, an interdisciplinary team. Yeah, I like that. So you kind of touched on it, but I wanted to kind of run through all of this, the common symptoms that women have in perimenopause. And because every, and we, let me just say to begin with, and I'm sure you're going to agree with me, is that every single individual is different. But there are some common symptoms that we all go through in some way or another or at some time or another during this period of time between when we have our first last regular period and our last period that leads to menopause so what what kinds of symptoms do you find in most of your patients 
wide ranging, as you said, uh, highly individualized. I'd say the common denominators are probably fatigue, poor quality sleep, mm -hmm. uh, headaches, either an increase in headaches or a new onset of uh, hormonal type headaches that women haven't had before, palpitations, so cardiac issues. Uh, and again, you have to, we, we always have to remember not to just chalk it up that it's automatically hormonal, but, you know, some of these things definitely would require a, a workup if they're new onset. Mm -hmm. But the collection of symptoms that we see, typically um, those things I mentioned, weight gain is a big one. Mm -hmm. Women will complain particularly about the pattern of the weight gain that suddenly um, their stomach and waist look very different. The right. waist is thick. You lose that definition. And that seems to be even in women who are, you know, working out and eating the same amount. And yep. we know that hormonally it's because of the change in, you know, the receptors uh, for fat and that the pattern of fat is very different we get like that apple shape more than that gynoid um, kind of deposition of fat. So that's all very normal, but obviously not welcomed. Um, <laughs> of course. Most people don't love that part. Um, and then also it increases, as we said, increases in premenstrual-like symptoms, you know, changes in mood, um, an increase in irritability, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, right. So, memory sometimes, yes, I think memory cognitive. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, I could go, I could go on and on with the, the symptoms I, I have. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's almost would be depressing to read all of the <laughs> symptoms. Let's not I don't over. think it would be encouraging. So I've just sort of hit the highlights, but again, um, you know, the, the mood issues, the sleep issues, uh, weight, palpitations, headaches. And I think also what's important to note is that this doesn't last forever. Uh, this is part of the transition. Right. And once women complete that transition, however long that takes, and for some women it doesn't take that long, and for some women it can last for several years, but that this does not mean they're going to be stuck in this like hormone hell right. forever. Right. Um, it is, you know, it is a normal transition. And for some women, it's going to be uh, more difficult than others. And for some women are going to find that month to month, it's highly variable. So it may seem worse at times than other times. Women who have, um, you know, have had more difficulty in the past with, uh, like that time right before their period, they may find that these hormonal um, fluctuations are harder for them. So you really can't compare yourself to anyone else. It really is very individual. It's based on a lot of genetic factors, um, you know, differences in neurotransmitters in the brain and how our brain senses those drops in estrogen and progesterone all of these things are highly, highly individual. So it's important, I think, for women not to compare themselves to other people. 
Correct. Really beautiful advice. And just, I want to repeat what you said earlier about it being a normal time of our life. And this is not just being able to have this compassion for moving through it and not hating on ourselves. Because I think our, I've been exercising really well at a, you know, good pace for me personally. And I've eaten really well for years. And I feel all of a sudden my body, you know, could be kind of rebelling against my habits. And that can be really, that could mess with our mind a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is, you know, yeah, you say that very well. I, I also think this is a good time. And this is a, something where the data, we, I want to see more data. And I think the data is going to be very powerful um, as we get more of it is with mindfulness techniques. And mm-hmm. Using mindfulness and particularly some of the qualities or perspectives of mindfulness that have to do with self-compassion and uh, radical acceptance. Those philosophies, not only in cognitive behavior therapy, which can be part of that as well, but also using meditation, uh, having a, a yoga practice, any type of mindfulness practices, those have all been shown to have a beneficial effect on some of these things that we're talking about that are so hard to change. Sleep, sleep quality, um, you know, these kinds of things can really help that. So I think that if I had one message, it would be that for women who are perimenopausal, this is a great time to take time for yourself and really look at how can you get your health in the best possible order. And for women who are menopausal and have had that final menstrual period and are in those, uh, maybe in the, the throes of the hot flashes, you know, that there is help out there, that there are things they can do to make themselves feel better. And they don't have to just, I, I, I feel badly when I see patients you know, I have, I have patients that I don't know how they've done it. They will come crawling to me two years later and they will have, you know, not slept and had hot flashes several times a day. And they feel like it's an act of desperation to finally come and see someone like me because they say, Oh, I heard that you know how to, you know, combine hormones or how to effectively and I, I just couldn't take it anymore, you know, and yeah. I hate for women to have to get to that point. Right. Um, what is the stigma, do you think, based on your supporting women for this, for these last 20 years, what is the stigma for doing HRT, hormone replacement therapy? And like, what's your advice on that? The stigma being that women are reluctant and they only, you know, oftentimes will only do it when they come crawling after suffering for so long. Right. I think it's um, part of it comes out of this WHI. I think that it was really, really blown up in the media and it sticks in people's mind. You know, I wish everything would stick this well in people's <laughs> mind. Debbie and I said the same thing. <laughs> no, it's like, wow, that was really powerful that, that women associated for so long hormones with like a bad effect and outcome. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is also 
women can, women are very tough. <laughs> I think they can put up with a lot of discomfort and they don't always realize that that doesn't mean that they have to. So I'm not sure all the different variables that go into that, but I do think that part of it is women feeling like maybe they have no choice and, and that all, all pharmaceuticals are bad, you know, and that, right. that if that's the only answer, they're not going to do it. Um, well, I think there's a, a growing population of people being headstrong about that idea and wanting to say, I can handle it on my own and I can get through it. And so I, I think what you're identifying is very personal journey for everybody. You've said that a couple of times. You know, women weren't living so much of their lives in this hormonal time frame. So uh, we don't necessarily have a great roadmap for how to do it, right? Right. And I also think that, you know, thinking back to my grandmother's generation and even before that, um, the menstrual cycle, it was such a shameful thing. Everything around bleeding every month was shameful. And so I imagine that any, if they were going through symptoms, they kept it to themselves. They didn't share it with anybody because it was a shameful thing, you know? So I think really it's just in the past, you know, generation or two that people are beginning to talk about this stuff and starting to not feel shameful about it. It's become a fact. So we need the red tent back. Yeah, (laughs) Exactly. We need to be, we need to be a tribe. I mean, we need to recognize that whether it's getting our period for the first time or getting our last period or, you know, being 70 and being 15 or so years beyond this and having other issues that we need to just talk about it and we need to feel that not that sense of isolation that we have to suffer through this or that we just got to grit it out. And um, I think that that's really important just that we're talking about it and having this conversation. I agree. And I think it's about time women start talking about this and making it more of a upfront thing because we are actually half of the population. In the U.S., you know, we have more women than men. Oh. And with the aging of the population, 64 million women are 49 and older. Wow. And it's something like 2 million women reaching menopause every day. And we know that many of these women, if not most, are likely to survive to age 83 or older, right? Mm -hmm. So... Women are going to be living basically about 33% of their lives in that menopausal time frame. Wow. So I think that, you know, demographically, this is such an important, timely issue. And it's something we definitely need to be talking about. We know the average age of menopause is about 51.6 years. But that's not taking into account that transition that hormonal transition, which can take several years, even 10 or more years in some women. So when you put all of that together, you know, 37% of the U.S. population is between the ages of 40 to 59, so that whole perimenopausal contingent, and almost 50% of women are aged 40 and up. So we forget Mm. that the aging of the population isn't just women 
getting older and older, but it's more and more women reaching those hormonal transitions. And so if we don't talk about this, you know, we're ignoring um, more than half the population. Yeah. And let's talk more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk more. Let's talk more. Millions of women are going through it. And if we had more conversations, we could have more data and we could have better resolution for our daughters and nieces and the next few generations to come. So the more we talk about it, the more we can just develop the healing of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Can people visit you now? Are you in active practice or do you have... I have an active practice, but not, not because of COVID, not currently. So I, I hope to be back in practice probably next year. I'm really thinking of setting up like a telehealth practice uh, for all of these issues because they're so under-addressed. And truthfully, my takeaway, and I, I think this is something interesting that we've learned from COVID, is the value of, I mean, telehealth has been remarkably successful and effective. And I think what it shows us is that there's a huge value to listening to our patients and talking to our patients. Mm-hmm. And that like as as nice as a full head to toe exam is, particularly in women's health, we are going with longer intervals between pap smears. Um, we really are not uh, – Pelvic exams for asymptomatic women are no longer recommended as a routine um, exam. And so a lot of taking good care of women is really about these discussions and really about education and history taking. And it's very low tech stuff, you know, and we can, we don't have to necessarily uh, have access to a lot of equipment to do what we're doing right now. So a lot of menopausal care can be done, I think, by telehealth, you know, in, in a very high-quality way. So that's, that's an interesting thing to me that's come out of COVID. Yeah. And I'm looking at. We've really enjoyed you giving us your, um, your energy and your wisdom oh, and um, bringing to our audience some really key ideas about the normalcy of perimenopause and menopause. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you both so much. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I love finding like-minded souls that can take good care of women. So thank you for all the good work you're doing. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. Keep the conversation going at nourishcoaches.com. And stay tuned for more Nourish Noshes as we continue our quest to make the world a healthier place.